Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. You have no idea how much it pains me to use a super tramp cut. And I'm sitting here thinking, I have to let this unfold a little bit musically. <laughs> it's super tramp. I don't. Uh, all right. Well, speaking of giving a little bit, um, we are talking about philanthropy today. It is, not an, uh, it is not a coincidence or an accident that we are doing this on the first day of a pledge drive. Um, because obviously we are going to spend this week, as we often do, asking you to think a little bit about nonprofits and how they're funded and all that kind of stuff. And the perfect person to have on to begin a week such as this one. I mean, our other shows will not be about philanthropy. I want to make that clear, too. But uh, the perfect person to have on to begin a week like this is Amy Schiller, uh, the author of The Price of Humanity, How Philanthropy Went Wrong uh, and How to Fix It. Uh, Amy Schiller is a scholar, writer, political philosopher, uh, visiting, visiting scholar at Dartmouth College, and she joins us now. Amy Schiller, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks, Colin. So, you know, maybe we should just begin by discussing what constitutes philanthropy just as opposed to what constitutes giving. I know they're very, very similar concepts. On the other hand, reading your book, sometimes it feels as though philanthropy has some kind of cutoff point. Like if it's less than X, let's not talk about it in terms of philanthropy. First of all, are there useful distinctions to make between major giving, major gifts, and what schlemiels like me do, you know, a few, a few thousand <laughs> bucks a year? Well, it's interesting you say that because uh, I just finished doing some writing about how important small gifts are to philanthropy. Um, so I want to maybe make a distinction that is less about size and more about sensibility. Um, and the way that I write about philanthropy is that it's both this act of giving money um, and it's also a sensibility that's found in the meaning of the word itself, love of humanity. So I take that as an invitation or an opportunity to define humanity in the most capacious possible sense and think about how we use resources to show our love of, our um, appreciation for, our honoring of that big, broad understanding of humanity um, and really use them to help people not just survive, but thrive as full human beings to their fullest human potential. So there's a philosophical component to philanthropy, at least in its ideal form, um, that I think sort of operates on a different level than 
the kind of tears of giving. Because one of the most important examples that I give in the book of philanthropy is uh, the crowdfunding campaign that brought about the installation of the Statue of Liberty. And that was done through very small gifts, gifts of 10 cents, 25 cents back in 1885. So uh, it's, I, I really think about philanthropy more as um, a particular modality, like a way of engaging and giving more so than a particular threshold of a dollar amount. In fact, I would hope that it would be more inclusive of gifts at all levels. So um, when we talk about philosophical underpinnings, uh, we need maybe to pivot just briefly or or maybe more than briefly to the vogue for effective altruism. Effective altruism derives from a set of philosophical philosophical precepts dating back at least as far as Jeremy Bentham, but then coined a little bit more by modern philosophers like Peter Singer. This is all about you know the 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 greatest good for the greatest number of people. And it is does seem a little, empty of the fill part of philanthropy. We don't really necessarily pick up a lot of love. I was watching a TED Talk where Chris Anderson was talking to Bill and uh, Melinda, then Melinda Gates' wife, um, and he talked about big sad faces as though <laughs> that was like a really bad <laughs> bad reason to give, <laughs> give money. <laughs> but um, Chris Anderson did that too, not, not Bill or Melinda. But mm. say a little bit about effective altruism. I mean, the love part that you just talked about seems to be replaced by a kind of relentless quantification. I think that might even be a phrase from your book. Yes. Well, and I love your phrase, um, empty of the fill, (laughs) that gets at the hollowness, I think. And I think the effective altruists are in some ways the strongest foil of mine in the book, specifically for those reasons that you point out. They have, um, many of them have this very rigid understanding of what constitutes good, what constitutes, um, you know, when, when you're talking about the maximum amount of good, you're, they often think about it in terms of volume, just sheer numbers of how many lives saved, how many quality life years added to to people's lives, um, which isn't wrong. It's just that they're so rigid and absolutist about it, that everything is reduced down to, have we saved more lives? Have we, um, have we increased the number? And and there's a kind of um, slipped in there of, of economically productive years. Um, so there's also a kind of um, emphasis on people's working and their productivity as an indicator of the goodness of their life. Um, so uh, not a not a form of human flourishing that I would necessarily embrace. So yes, the effective altruist, there's an example that I uh, use in the book of uh, Peter Singer um, writing about the donations to restore Notre Dame Cathedral after the fire. And the headline that he wrote says, how many lives is Notre Dame worth? So everything gets sort of collapsed into this view of can we, is it quantifiable? Can we measure it? Is it numerical? Um, and is it really the, have we reached the bare minimum of survival for the greatest number of people? And that anything that goes beyond that standard or has a different rubric of success is somehow unethical. Like that's the corollary for them. And that for me is the real problem because it says, wow, we've really in this system reduced human life and what we value about human beings and humanity down to just mere survival. Uh, perhaps economically productive survival. 
as opposed to the full richness of what human beings are capable of, our creativity, our imagination, collaboration, flourishing, all of these things that are pretty much by design not quantifiable um, and not definable. And so it's really gone in exactly the wrong direction of saying this is what makes giving and philanthropy successful is this de minimis sort of definition of humanity when I want us to go in a much more maximal and expansive definition of one. And we should say for people who haven't followed this whole effect of altruism uh, debate, this isn't about just a bunch of people uh, in tenured spots in philosophy departments. This is about some of the super rich of this world. In fact, there's probably, I mean, unfortunately for them, their poster boy turned out to be the wrong one. Uh, Sam yeah. Bagman fried he's in prison right now. But I mean, beyond him, there are a lot of very well-known names who are subscribing to this particular thing. And I guess, you know, is... Amy, are you worried at all about literally making the perfect the enemy of the good? I mean, it's better that they do a lot of bed netting and stuff like that and try to, you know, eliminate malaria than that they do nothing. We'd like them to do something. Yeah, but that is the classic question. And the answer is um, I'm I'm rejecting, again, their absolutism. So in a way, they're the ones who have made their definition of perfect the enemy of the good. Um, the, the, that sort of rigid definition that says giving to things that don't register in our system isn't ethical or is less ethical or somehow less ideal that leaves no space for alternative frameworks. Uh, so I'm really, I'm not arguing against the idea that somehow it's good to save lives. I'm arguing against the idea that that's the only way to do good in the world, which I think is one of their really strong drumbeats. Um, and I should say, regarding the wealth of the effective altruists, it's not a coincidence. Um, and I think this is one of the other important downsides, because many effective altruists came up through this idea of earning to give. Um, and it, it has such a, a sort of hubristic validation, the idea that if you are smart, if you are discerning, if you have the data uh, at your fingertips and you have the right framework for engaging and giving so that it does have this maximum utility, then you, instead of working for a nonprofit or volunteering or something, you should go work for like a hedge fund and make the maximum amount of money that you can because you can then deploy it in the smartest possible way. That is in fact how you get a Sam Bankman freed. So it's not a coincidence that this really rests on the sort of individual sovereignty and power and intelligence of the donors themselves, and that there are only so many of those who sort of have the uh, brilliance, the algorithmic um, insight to um, deserve to accumulate these resources and then deploy them in the wisest possible fashion. So there's a hollowness there too that erodes the ability to see different perspectives, work with others, uh, remain flexible, join collective movements. There's a real political um, lacuna, I'm going to say. There's a real gap in that understanding of politics and social movements as these long, continuous, multifaceted projects of social change that look very different than uh, this number of bed nets or this number of you know lives in our formula um, that have been saved or would be saved in the future via this intervention. So just to be clear, like there, this isn't just people being too nerdy. This is people being, this is people sort of using their nerdiness and almost weaponizing it to justify the accumulation of wealth and their own 
sort of power and oversight over what constitutes good in the world. There's also, as long as we're trafficking in these Greek roots here, a kind of anthropocentrism that's, and it's it's not just anthropocentrism, it's future anthropocentrism. They call it long-termism, right? So oh, yeah. So they're way more worried about the Jetsons than they are about the Jeffersons. Um, huh. it's yes, like, right. And so can you say a little bit about that? I mean, that's, I, I don't know whether that that's sort of a, the tale of this comet, but somehow or other, they seem to get more and more obsessed with that idea of kind of just perpetuating humankind and making sure future humankind's doing okay. Well, it's more and more divorced from the messy, complicated reality of humanity on the ground. Um, and I say in the book that uh, for effective altruists, if you're looking for the kind of ideal return on your investment, then existing humans are depreciating assets. Right. So it's a bit like when you drive a car off the lot, like if you want to ensure the most sort of perfectly extended, productive human life, um, the best thing you can do is a hypothetical life way off in the future that you're extending where you don't have to contend with the actual contingencies of the present day or even the near future you can just go way off into the hypothetical far distant future and think about not saving hundreds of lives but saving trillions of hypothetical lives so again it's just it is it's the tale in that it's a form of giving that is very detached from human reality human connection human complexity um and really sort of withdrawn into this world of algorithmic calculation merely for their donor's sense of satisfaction and validation. So um, <laughs> I shouldn't bring up this next part uh, at the beginning of Pledge Week, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, and speaking of getting a little bit nerdy, I'd like to talk about taxes for just a second. So one of the things that happened under Trump uh, was the TJCA, uh, which um, which is a tax reform uh, bill that, among other things, pushed more people, once again, schlemiels like me, into the standard deduction bracket. I think 87 percent of taxpayers claimed the standard deduction in 2018. When you claim the standard deduction, you don't itemize. When you don't itemize, you can't deduct charitable contributions, at least you have to make a lot of them, I think, to, to get to the point where you can. It seems about twenty five thousand if you're filing jointly. Yeah. <laughs> you have to give away twenty five thousand a year to qualify for that. Right. Say a little bit about how you saw that shift. How does that look to you? Yeah. Well, this gets back to your earlier comment of like, is philanthropy something that only rich people do? And it it was exactly this tax reform that I think exacerbated or put us in danger of exacerbating that perception. Because exactly as you just so cogently explained, fewer people kind of register are sort of legible as charitable donors um, and see that giving incentivized or even acknowledged in any way through tax incentives. Now, I just want to pause and say um, it's not that that's the only reason that people should give, but if we are going to have tax incentives and we are going to somehow reward people giving to nonprofits as part of civil society and a supplement to our government, which is how it ideally should function, then it's very unfortunate that those incentives are only present at the top income levels. So I have proposed in the book a couple of ways to like reverse that. And can we uh, make the incentives more egalitarian? Can we provide and this idea is um, extended from Rob Reich, a political theorist at Stanford, the idea of a flat tax credit instead of a tax deduction that sort of says more is more. 
Um, so like the more you give, the more you can deduct. Could we instead look at incentivizing broader participation in philanthropic giving and find some way of rewarding um, small gifts that maybe proportionally are more meaningful to people's income um, than the gifts that are made at such high income levels and such high net worths. So <clears throat> yes, to the short answer to your question is that um, fewer people uh, now itemize, like drastically fewer people, and that giving at small levels has dropped and overall giving is down about 3%, even though the top 100 nonprofits are up 4% this mm. year in their return. So you're seeing a concentration of, um, of beneficiaries in the way that sort of mirrors the concentration of wealth and the sort of concentration, therefore, of almost like a worldview of what matters. So we're, instead of extending the pluralism of giving, we're, we're shrinking it. I, I will say that my own series of, um, you know, personal, I don't know, per, personal apersues about this uh, does, I think, take a pretty good Schillerian uh, turn because, yeah, when the, when the itemization was removed and I'm thinking, ah, oh, geez, yeah, because as you say, it's taking it away is a problem. I'm used to getting some kind of benefit from my from my charitable giving. So that bothered me and maybe I'm not going to give as much. And then I would say, Amy, over the you know the years since this has been changed, I've been I've been doing, I think, one of the things you want people to do, which is give because it's right, give because it feels important. Find uh, charities that can really, you know, even benefit from my relatively small donation, which I've been able to do. And I don't know. I got over being crabby about losing <laughs> my deduction at a certain point and, and looked at it at a, a on a more human level. Listen, I think you should get some kind of tax credit. Let yeah. me be clear. You know, I don't want you to be some, you know, purely. I don't want you to be purely virtuous. <laughs> you know, I just think that the virtue should be more evenly distributed. <laughs> Um, and, but you are, you are right that what I am hoping for is more um, thoughtfulness and more rigor about um, giving in a way that feels like an extension of our connection to others and to community and to our values. Um, something that's a little bit more complex and multifaceted. Um, and really takes a broader view of what we want our giving to accomplish um, than the kind of more transactional ways of engaging and giving that I think are often very uh, encouraged. And you may be getting to this, but we I wrote in the book about the ways that giving got conflated with shopping yeah. and commercial transactions, right? We'll, so yeah, we'll have, to, uh, you know, we'll have yeah. to pause before we get to that. In fact, we have to take a little break here. I, I just quickly do want to say one thing, and it's really more to the audience than it is to you, but I think it might be interesting to you too. So I have a number of friends who are considerably better off than, than I, I probably have like, you know, in the lowest 5% of income from my graduating class at Yale University. Uh, but you know, a lot of my friends have really nice houses, and I was kind of going through a tough time with some health problems in my family. And so people were really nice, and they would say, oh, well, use my house and wherever, you know, use my beach house, go get some rest or something, and, and which is lovely, you know. And what I've done is say, okay, but tell me your favorite charity. I want to make some kind of a, a gift or something like that. And I've actually learned about a lot of very small charities as a result of that practice. All right, we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back with lots more Amy Schiller. This is about a three minute break where people are going to ask you to support this station, this company, this show. And so, yes, if it brings you joy, that might even be a good reason right there. What's wrong with the world today? 
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You know, if Phil Collins doesn't want to, doesn't make you want to engage in philanthropy, I don't really know what could. Uh, we're talking today to Amy Schiller, writer, political philosopher, visiting scholar at Dartmouth College, author of The Price of Humanity, How Philanthropy Went Wrong and How to Fix It. Uh, Amy Schiller, let me begin this uh, segment with the question that, um, I have, as I was reading the book, I have a lot of questions that were popping up. But I guess one of them is, okay, let's imagine that your rich Uncle Pennybags, Uncle Mortimer Schiller, passes on, God forbid, rest in peace, and he leaves you, I don't know, 100 million bucks. Uh, what are you going to do with it? I'm going to think a lot. <laughs> the first move. Um, I, I'm probably going to allocate a lot of it. And, and I'll get to the sort of back end of what I would do uh, okay. in a second, because I think the administration of that sort of fortune is also relevant to this. But um I would most likely allocate the majority of it to either endow or create kind of locked in annual sustaining gifts for institutions at the local and some at the national level that provide um, art and culture and recreation and leisure and ideally make those things available for free, or I would use that money to help make those things available for free. I would also wrap up libraries into that. I would wrap up um, any kind of enrichment programming um, for children and adults. I would probably build community centers um, or sort of new spaces and endow them so that they could be staffed um, at a humane level. Um, and that's probably what I would do. I, was, I would try to sort of expand the infrastructure of the enrichment of life, um, especially in communities that matter to me. Um, and then there would be some that, of course, I would reserve for more kind of urgent and responsive giving. Um, an early interview that I did, the interviewer said to me, you have to do some giving for the world 
that we have and some giving for the world we want to build. Um, and I've been using that ever since. I think that's a perfect summation, um, but I would really try to think about um, creating a, the, that sort of robust infrastructure and particularly spaces and spaces that are maintained and staffed and tended to um, that kind of allow for that collective flourishing. That would be my number one priority. So you'd sort of be Amy LeBron James Carnegie. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's my dog's name, actually. <laughs> so this reflects uh, um, a dichotomy that you uh, work with in the book. It's the dichotomy between so-called bread and so-called roses. Your thinking is government should be in the bread business. That is the sustenance business, uh, allowing philanthropy to be more in the roses business, the kind of quality of life, for want of a sharper term. Um, say a little bit more about that. I guess one of the questions that I have is, how do we trust government to stay in the bread and sustenance business? It seems like a lot of the times they're trying to get out of yeah. that business. I mean, the the problem, so, so the good news is that my book is a work of theory. <laughs> and mm. so the first thing I can say is this vision is takes a very long view. So I'm under no illusions that somehow the U.S. government or any other, um, you know, government of a of a wealthy nation is immediately going to transform into sort of a safeguard of our social welfare needs. I mean, obviously, I know that's very far away politically, um, and that that is a struggle in and of itself. Uh, so the the job of the book is to say there is something beyond that struggle, um, and to say that even as we kind of focus our many of our energies on advancing justice and policy, um, we should know that kind of, again, against the sort of reductionism of like everything is sort of collapsed into meeting our basic needs to say, no, alongside that, there is this whole other domain, a whole other sphere where we can deploy our resources for affirming and valuing sort of our full humanity, almost as sort of sanctuaries um, from that sort of more urgent struggle. Now, to get a little bit more concrete about it, how do we trust our governments? Um, I think that there is always going to be a realm of contested political action. There's always going to be more um, a, a need for sort of continuous demand and claims and contestation for appropriate political policy. Um, and that is a whole domain of work that I value and I participate in. And um, the good news and the bad news about this book is that it uh, does not claim to have any expertise on how exactly that ideal is going to be achieved in the near term, only that it is sort of a separate and important ideal um, but distinct from that, the standards to which we should hold philanthropy. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think it sort of is important to bear in mind. I mean, if God forbid Trump got elected again, we knew what he did last time. He he and his agriculture secretary, Sonny Perdue, they went to war against SNAP, you know, which is, you know, it's yeah. some people think of that as food stamps, but it's 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 more than that now. But um, and, and my response was to give some money to the local food bank because I'm thinking they're not going to go hungry you know, because of me. Right. Um, so, well, but yeah. you know, there's an interesting thing here, which is that um, something I think many people have noticed is that the rise of Trump um, is also kind of an extended symptom of this lack of a common world, of common spaces, of um, sort of collective life that gives people a sense of 
connection and thriving and meaning. So there is something, while not sort of directly confrontational about creating those spaces and those institutions, there is something about sort of um, enriching the soil out of which our democracy grows uh, by sort of using philanthropic dollars to create more of a, an infrastructure for being together in a collective, encountering one another, instead of just sort of atomizing into our own little sort of silos of increasingly polarized thought um, and sort of alienation. So now's a good time to talk about LeBron James. You, you do uh, express some admiration for King James and, and how he's handled his public giving. Say a little bit about what you see him doing and why you like it. Yeah, his um, the first thing that I knew, noticed about LeBron, and this is when I knew I would write about him, is uh, an interview that he gave when his school in Akron opened, it's the I Promise School. Um, and he was asked, why does he give every student there a bike and a helmet? And his response was, when I was a kid, having a bike was what made me feel free. That felt like such an important entry point into a guy who was thinking about giving, not as something where he wanted to hit certain numerical metrics or um, use it as an incentive for any kind of measurable performance. He really wanted to cultivate freedom, autonomy, full personhood in these kids. And I think that's very rare, especially when you're talking about black children, poor black children. That's that's a a grander vision um, for their their life and their development than I think is often the case. Then I found out that the I Promise School is not a charter school, but in fact, a school governed by the public school system with a collective bargaining agreement, which is also very rare. So there's a sense of partnership with existing public democratically governed institutions instead of that kind of disastrous model of parachuting in and building a fancy charter school. And there's all these sort of secret restrictions about who can attend and, you know, and it uh, also undermines the, um, the, the teachers unions and collective bargaining that are um, sort of backbones of our public school system. Um, and then the last thing I would say about his giving is everything that he does is uh, uh, providing a service, but also a sense of enrichment, a sense of beauty, um, a sense of connection. So that it's not just doing the bare minimum to meet social needs. It's very thoughtful in that he does do that. He does provide you know, enrichment to the school families so that there's meal pickup, for example. But there's also a beautiful school. There's a beautiful housing um, uh, center where people get yoga classes and art classes. There's a beautiful community center that has performing arts spaces. So there's a real sense of um, giving people not just what they need, but also a sense of dignity and connection and belonging to one another that will really lead them and their communities to thrive. All right. The, on that note, um, we're going to take a, another break, a very, very quick break. No one's going to ask you to pledge during this break. And then Amy Schiller and I will be back for our final segment together.
We're back. Our outstanding technical producer today is Kat Pastor. Lily Tyson's the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, and she produced this particular episode. This particular episode features the thoughts of Amy Schiller, writer, political philosopher, and visiting scholar at Dartmouth. She's the author of The Price of Humanity, How Philanthropy Went Wrong, and How to Fix It. So we haven't talked too much about very specific names in the world of philanthropy. One that we should probably talk about, well, actually, rather than I having me bring it up, I'm going to have Trevor Noah bring it up. Kat, this is C1. Go right ahead. And as for Mackenzie Stotts, how can you not love this woman, huh? Because she's exposing what billionaires don't want you to realize. Uh, billionaires always like, if you raise my taxes even a little bit, how will I have the money to feed all of my private jets, huh? <laughs> but think about it, Mackenzie Scott has only been a billionaire for three years, and she's already given away $10 billion, more than her ex, Jeff Bezos, has given away his entire life, his entire life. And get this, and get this, she's still a billionaire, don't forget that. All right, so Mackenzie Scott, yes, uh, ex-wife of Jeff Bezos, yes, has um, Amy basically said she's planning to kind of go out. She's planning to to unload, you know, most of her wealth before she dies. Um, How does she fit within your framework of thinking about philanthropy? I see so much to admire in Mackenzie Scott with one asterisk. And I will say that asterisk gets sort of weaker and weaker <laughs> by, uh, by the day. But let's talk about what's great about her. So she is a really transformative force for one simple sort of almost administrative detail alone. And that is that all of the nonprofits that she gives her money to, she gives it unrestricted. Um, and that is this very sort of simple, understated rejection of this idea that uh, philanthropists need to be so highly sort of controlled and designed um, and be so highly strategic um, in their giving to the point where they place all these burdens on their grantees to make their work conform to the donor's worldview um, and to the donor sort of rubric of what constitutes success. Um, there's this way that a lot of major donors give that um, extends their control into the nonprofit's work. It's as if it sort of remains their money and then the nonprofit acts as this sort of like pass through. Um, And the fact that Mackenzie Scott gives unrestricted and gives in this very trusting way um, is really revolutionary. And I think more people should follow that example. Um, She is also giving so against the grain on multiple levels. So, so she is not giving to elite institutions, um, which I think is basically to the good. Um, she is giving to a lot of local organizations. Um, and I'll get into sort of where I think there's room for her to improve, um, but she's giving to local organizations. She's trying to find places that have smaller budgets where this could make a huge difference. Um, and she's again, sort of giving these transformative gifts um, and giving them to nonprofits without requiring them to sort of chase her down. Um, So really removing the burden of that labor from the nonprofits themselves and freeing them on sort of both ends of the gift, both like removing the the, uh, mandate to sort of seek that gift and, and solicit it and also most mandates to kind of report back on it and kind of make it, you know, show 
shows some kind of report out um, that will satisfy her expectations. She's not giving with expectations, and that's great. Um, where I have some curiosity, I'm going to say, remaining curiosity about her giving as it evolves over time is um, whether or not what she is doing is actually creating new um, structures, new infrastructures, new bases of power and security for the people that she's trying to help. In other words, are these major gifts sort of extending the annual budgets of these organizations for several years? Um, are they going to actually create something new, create some sense of um, leverage or security, or are they sort of merely palliative um, in their effect? Um, and then the kind of final point on that is that she does seem quite concerned with racial and economic justice. Um, but her giving is not targeted at the causes, for the most part, of those injustices. So in the book, I do mention that if she really wanted to transform, you know, economic justice, she could dump a billion dollars into the Amazon Workers Strike Fund. Um, and I say that a little bit facetiously, but there is something to be said for her being becoming more confrontational, more a sort of um, systemic in her focus about sort of what the upstream causes of injustice are and whether or not her enormous resources could move the needle, particularly when it comes to sort of policy um, or practices, or sort of workplace practices um, that would really make a difference in people's lives. So I think there's a lot to praise about her, but I hope that her giving is done in such a way that it actually doesn't just transfer money, but transfers power to people in a way that I think actually really matters to her. I mean, she does seem to see a big picture or a whole field kind of the way you want people to. I was reading some of her stuff that she was written in Medium. She talks about a growing body of research, contains examples of, of gifts that sort of create unanticipated benefits, bike lanes designed to protect cyclists, improve local retail sales and property values for everyone's seat belt laws, uh, adopted to protect young children, saving the lives of people of all ages, et cetera, et cetera. But um, Amy, I just, we don't have a lot of time yet left. And one of the things I wanted to just probe out a little bit was that idea of structural change. Um, and, and this is not so much about Mackenzie Scott, because I don't think she's necessarily looking for tax advantages anymore. But a lot of people are. And, and as you know better than I, once again, the tax laws are kind of set up to to penalize that. A 5013C, which is sort of a pure, you know, nonprofit or quote unquote pure nonprofit operation, uh, is tax deductible uh, if you give to it a 501C4. So yes, three, right. I'm doing it all wrong. But that's no, the, you're the, right. the arm that has, uh, the kind that has a lobbying arm, a kind, right. uh, a kind of nonprofit that pursues structural change, often by addressing the government, is in fact a not, is not tax deductible. So there's a, an incentive against pursuing structural change. Right. That's that's really right. And um, I think I'll say two things about that. One is that uh, that's kind of why um, this these questions of justice are sort of, to me, in the political lane, which is really important and active. And you absolutely should be using your time and your resources for activism and for political change and for political campaigns um, and advocacy. And there's again, it's it's gray and it might be a bit uncomfortable, but I think to me that's where there's a distinction from philanthropy, which has more to do with these sort of evergreen pursuits of affirming human value that are not sort of responsive to a political climate, but actually kind of create the 
um, broader environment um, in which we kind of show up in the world and engage in activism. Uh, and I do want to say that when I mentioned the things I would give to with my $100 million windfall and creating cultural infrastructure, that I would include public radio in that for sure, um, as a thing that sort of creates that sense of collective connection and purpose and people sort of sharing in a common experience. Um, so it, so like, yes, I agree with you that philanthropy is not a tool necessarily for this sort of systemic policy change and that we should be working towards that, but that there is a whole other domain of things that um, const- help sort of shape and constitute us as the people who show up to engage in that work and show up for one another in all kinds of ways as full human beings. And that's what philanthropy can really offer that no other kind of resources can. Yeah, we're you're pretty much out of time here. I, I just want to end maybe by reading Amy Schiller to Amy Schiller. I think what you're saying right now uh, is very much summed up in the, the final paragraph of the book. The project of philanthropy is to make the earth more of a home and to encourage inhabitants of the spaces and institutions it provides to feel at home in the world. Ours is a world for humans. It should serve all of us, not the few who can exploit the many for maximum profit. The money we use to build the common world communicates our belief in that world and in all who inhabit it. It, inf- it affirms the value of hu- humanity beyond price. That's, I don't know, you got 30 seconds if you want to add to that. <laughs> I put it at the end of the book for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly right. I'm glad that that resonates with you. Um, it, it is a hopeful vision. It might seem far, but that is the work of theory and of writing and imagination. And I'm, I'm honored to have engaged in it with you. All right. Uh, we were honored to have you. Amy Schiller, the book is The Price of Humanity, How Philanthropy Went Wrong and How to Fix It. Uh, now we are going to take a break in which very lovely people are going to ask you to support this particular enterprise, which is not for profit, which is dependent on your donations. Please stand by us. <laughs> 